Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Euphrates Network podcast. My name is Daniel, and, and I'm here with my co-host, Shayi. Hello, everyone. And today on the Euphrates Network podcast, we are going to be uh, discussing evangelicalism and progressive Christianity. So we just want to recap the previous episode, which uh, we talked about how evangelicalism developed and the way people understand the term of evangelicalism versus how the term is used. And last episode, we referenced a very uh, big phrase called the Bebbington Quadrilateral. And many of you are probably wondering, what the heck is that? And uh, we're going to talk about what is the Bebbington Quadrilateral quadrilateral i can't even say that uh, word but we have she here he's a phd in something so he'll be able to explain <laughs> it to us very well yeah. uh Shay, can you just give a quick recap of how evangelicalism developed yep i'll use my phd in earth sciences um that background to help explain this um anyways you, uh. you rock bro theology <laughs> rocks <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I mean, we we've been talking about evangelicalism the last episode, and um, I think it's because it's it's not a term that many people embrace. Um, when it's used, it's more so used in like the culture to define, you know, kind of a political voting block. Um, but I feel like it's still an important term because it helps differentiate, specifically within Protestantism like what we believe from what other Protestants believe. And it's a way of basically like trying to retain the core ethos of Protestantism and differentiate it from areas that seem to be compromising it through like modern influences. So, I mean, how evangelicalism developed within Protestantism, there's always just a stream within Protestantism that really focused on the personal aspect of God and the individual need to be converted rather than being a Christian as belonging to a group, like an institution or a church or being baptized. Um, and so this is something we see in what, what they call the Great Awakenings. These were these large movements of revival in the UK and the US where large proportions of people came to Christ. And one of the hallmarks of it is that people... They saw themselves as individually born again believers rather than primarily like members of a denomination or a group. Um, and then as you, you know, as you move on through the 1800s and through the 1900s, you know, it was a term consistently used to differentiate from um, theological liberalism, which we're going to we're going to talk more about in a little bit. Um, but one of the core um, ways that people define evangelicalism Actually, there, there's one scholar who said an evangelical is anyone who likes Billy Graham. Like, that's the simplest way <laughs> to explain it. You know who Billy Graham is. Um, but there's this other guy, this historian named David Bevington. We introduced him earlier, where he defined this thing called the Bevington Quadrilateral. And there was four points. It was a quadrilateral four. There are four points that define evangelicalism. And I, and I would argue, like, we're using the term evangelicalism, but I would argue that these four points are important for anyone who would turn themselves to be a Christian. Um, so it's biblical. Yeah, so that's, yeah that's one. So that's one thing that evangelicals would say, right? It's that also the claim to 
you need a personal relationship with Jesus to actually be a Christian, right? Right, yeah. Because so, yeah, and just talking about the history of evangelicalism, it's a way of saying that, like, I don't know, it's it's kind of a gentle way of saying that many people who define themselves as Christian don't always hold up to the biblical test of what a Christian really is. Now, I'm I'm not saying, neither of us are saying that anyone who identifies as an evangelical as a true Christian and those who don't identify as an evangelical must not be true Christians. But I would say that it's evangelicalism is like a very important um, category to help um, just define what a true Christian is. And so the four points of the quadrilateral are biblicism. So a particular regard for the Bible, you know, essentially the Bible is the authority for all truth. It's fully inspired by God. Crucicentricism, a focus on the atoning work of Christ on the cross. Conversionism, the belief that human beings need to be converted. And activism, the belief that the gospel needs to be expressed in effort. Nice. So what is the, let's start with biblicism. Right. What is the, what's the big deal? Like, why is there this overemphasis that you know as some people would put it uh, overemphasis on the bible uh you know you guys are bible bangers you're all these things and people come up with all these different terms bible thumpers uh why is this important right so i think the core thing about believing the bible is that everyone has to submit to some type of authority for their life. And even in in a group, like, so you're gathering in a group, you have a community, everyone has to submit to an authority. You know, in the Catholic church, you know, there's an element of Bible, but then there's an element of tradition. So the authority is in the, you know, in the like historical witness of what they believe is the one true Catholic church. Whereas Protestantism, it took authority away from the church and just said the Bible alone. But when the Bible stops being authority, what happens, and this is what we're going to talk about more in this episode, what happens is that the authority starts to become just kind of the the culture and like modern influences because everyone submits to some, like anytime someone believes truth, there's an element of it that you're accepting something that you've received from somewhere else or something else. And so without clinging to the Bible, what happens is that we just become people that absorb um any other type of authority that asserts itself in a, as authority in the world so i say that's what that's why the bible's important it's because biblicism is important is because we believe that if god inspired the word it's the one um authority that's you know that's perfect in terms of its um ability to guide our lives and to guide what our, what we believe yeah, and it's if God actually gave this book to humans as a guide, then if he is who he says, if God is who he says in the Bible, that he's good, and he's a good God, he's trying to guide us, then this is actually in our best interest to also uh, listen and obey what the Bible says. Uh, you know, it's, it's not just like God is, uh, you know, wanting to... Uh, lay down some rules for the fun of it, but he's actually uh, trying to give us a um, trying to give us like a guide. And and one other thing I would just say about the centrality of the Bible is that 
uh, it's important to not just stop at the book, but let the book lead you to the person that the book leads you to the author. That's the real heart behind the biblical centrism of evangelicals is that uh, God is actually trying to communicate with us. And we need to take that seriously and not say like, oh, well, maybe God really didn't mean these verses or he didn't mean those verses or, well, we've traditionally understood it like, you know, in X way for 2000 years, but now we're going to understand these verses in Y way, you know, just kind of uh, twisting some of, of the scriptures. Yeah. hundred percent. So, um, what is the, what is maybe the counter argument to biblical centrism that we see uh, in the culture today? Yeah, I mean, I'd say that I say the main one is that, you know, we live in um, a world and I don't know if the world has always been this way. Maybe it has. But I think that a lot of people think that newer is better, that there's this there's this assumption that as we modernize, as we discover things about science, as we develop new technology, we we learn things about how we ought to live that um, anytime you're appealing to something that was written like 2000 years ago, it must not have the same merit as something that's like more modern. And I'd say that's like one of the biggest reasons why people don't really accept the Bible is that they think that because it was written so long ago when people didn't have the same type of insights when it comes to certain aspects where we've like advanced that it must be irrelevant for today um and so yeah i think i think that's one and i mean i think obviously there's people who have a tough time with with miracles um there are people who have tough time with things that they perceive to be contradictions in the bible um they, they would have issues with things that they perceive to be out of step with how they understand morality today. Um, but I think that the main core of it that is the root of a lot of it is that people who don't believe that, like they don't just don't believe that old and something that's been handed down can hold truth in the same way as something that's modern. So what is the danger of not holding to a biblical centric worldview? or just faith practice? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think one of the core things is that you're susceptible to just kind of believe, you're always going to submit to authority. I, I know a lot of people feel like they can kind of be their own authority and can shape their own worldview through their own intuition. Like you hear the terms like, you know, I'm like, I'm a free thinker. I'm someone who likes to think for, for themselves. But inevitably, anytime, like everyone submits to authority. And so it makes you susceptible to a lot of the ideas that are pervasive in our culture that I believe are really undermining um, people's best interests. Um, and I mean, one of the differences between the authority of the Bible and the authority of like the worldviews of the culture is that 
You know, if we believe the Bible is given to us by God, it was written and given to us for our good. When we look at our culture and we look at the like a lot of the ideas that bleed through, the people who are purveyors of this idea of these ideas, they don't even always claim to be operating in your best interest. You know, a lot of um a lot of the world is driven by, you know, by greed, by um desire for success. And a lot of the I mean, let me I mean, let me just get more specific. Um, when I was younger, I used to listen to a lot of like hip hop and a lot of the messaging through not all the music, but like a large, maybe, I mean, no, majority of it was very destructive. You know, it was a lot of emphasis on just kind of seeking your own pleasure at all costs, a lot of emphasis on materialism. And because I wasn't really rooted in my faith, I began to start to believe their ideas because I, you know, there's these people I look up to that I thought were cool. And I started to like buy their worldview. But these people who are putting on this music, they don't care about me. You know, a lot of what they're doing is money. A lot of them, even when they like portray um, like gain culture and that kind of stuff, that's not, that's not even a life they're really living, but they sell it because um, like that's what makes the money. And so without having the authority of something like the Bible, it's very easy to fall prey to ideas being pervaded by people who just simply don't shouldn't have the authority in your life that they do. But simply you have a vacuum in which, you know, every idea is getting absorbed and there's nothing really to test it against. Right. Yeah, I can give one example. Uh, you know, something we hold as Christians and something that the Bible uh, teaches us as true is that all human beings are created in the image of God and have equal value. And when we talk, you talked about new things and a lot of people, they just want to jump on the newest uh, either science that, oh, this science doesn't agree with the Bible or this social movement doesn't agree with the Bible uh, and so on and so on. But, you know, these, like you said, Shay, these social movements and these new ideas are not always in our best interest. It was only a hundred years or so ago that scientists uh, were saying that white people were superior in intellect to black people. And as Christians, we would uh, say that this is not accurate because God has created everybody in his own image and given everybody you know, a brain that they can use and exercise to their fullest capacity. But the science was saying that, well, white people are superior to black people. And this would have been the equivalent of like a liberal, uh, you know, a Democrat or so to speak, someone on the left today. And, you know, if I can give one example from politics today, I would say that one thing that I think is extremely dangerous is the um, the sex change surgery of kids that are under eight, age 18. And you have many people saying that this is very dangerous to children. There was a clinic in the UK that got shut down and has over 1,000 lawsuits against it because they're performing these sex change surgeries of kids that are under 18. And, you know, it's in... It's in this, um, it's, 
you know, to say that, oh, well, there's there's no gender. You know, if you feel like a man, but you're a woman, then you can be a man. If you feel like a woman and you're a man and you, you know, and vice versa. Right. But the Bible says, no, God created man and woman, male and female. He created them. And, you know, we've believed this. Humanity has believed this its whole life and its whole existence. And, you know, in the last 10 years or so, however long this movement um, has been very, very new in our culture. And it's something that could ruin people's lives for the rest of their life. It could ruin their entire life. If a young kid who has a fantasy and says, oh, I'm actually a woman and they castrate him and he cannot have children anymore, that's going to ruin his whole life. And, you know, there's been some highly publicized people coming out and saying like, yeah, my life is ruined now through uh, these things. And so we have yet to see uh, the, the total effect and complete effect that this is going to have on people who have undergone these procedures. Uh, but that's just one example from modern uh, society. New is not always better. And what we want to do, what we want to say as evangelicals is we don't want to believe in new. We want to believe in the true, you know, what is true actually. And yeah, we hold the Bible to be true. So, yeah, yeah, no, you, you brought up perfect examples for how, um, without the anchor of truth that comes from outside of yourself, how susceptible you are to believing ideas that for many people, I think I would say probably the majority of people in the world, um, don't really make any sense. And one of the things that I've heard people appeal to when you talk about how like you need the Bible as a foundation for morality, they'll say that, like, you know, for instance, you say something today, like, uh, you know, everyone's equal, everyone has equal value. People say, people say stuff like, oh, you don't need the Bible to tell you that that's common sense. But like, what, what do you mean when you say common sense? It's intuitive to you, because you, you grew up in a culture and an environment where that was what was believed, and it got handed down, and it made sense to you. But the the further away you go from that anchoring point and from that foundation, the more you can drift from those ideas to adopt ideas that, you know, kind of don't make any sense. Like, so like the eugenics movement that you brought up, where, you know, it was a big movement in science, it was like, it was a big movement in the early 1900s to just kind of really study the difference between races and assign value to races, um, you know, as, as some being superior to others until like basically the the Holocaust ha happened and the Nazis adopted a lot of those ideas and people were like, oh crap, yeah, probably shouldn't go that down that direction. And we look back at that horrified of like, how does anyone get caught up with those ideas? But it's just like, this is any type of just deception of of these things is is easily feasible and possible and has probably happened at some point in world history when you don't have an anchor to to ultimate timeless truth um so yeah I, i'm glad you brought up a couple of those examples as to how that how that happens and so it's why you know we say that if we want our life to be anchored on truth we hold to a high regard of the bible and we look to that as our authority of truth rather than anything else yeah for sure uh Let's move on. Let's go to the second uh, point on the 
Bevington quadrilateral. That's a feel very smart saying that. Uh, it says that evangelicals are cross-centered, or you say crucis-centric, right? Yeah, crucis-centric, yeah. So why does this matter within evangelicalism? Right. So I think the, you know, the the cross, you know, it's the it's the center point of Christianity, the cross and resurrection, that Jesus died for our sins. And I think the core as to why this is identified as important, why sometimes this gets, this is one of the points that sometimes gets um, compromised from, is because the need from the, for the cross comes from the foundational belief that human beings are inherently sinful and need a savior. So the cross, it gets at the root of believing that there's no good works that human beings can do. There's no inherent goodness in them that's enough to allow them to work themselves like to work themselves up to God, to make themselves righteous before God. And so Jesus had to accomplish that on the cross for us. And one of the one of the ways that that belief gets compromised is that because you know, the Bible has a lot to say about morality. You look at, you know, books like Proverbs and you look at like practical things that you can do to, um, you know, just kind of live a, a more wholesome, more moral life. Sometimes that becomes the focus and the cross becomes forgotten about so that Christianity becomes, if I do A, B and C, this, this and this, I'm going to be a good citizen from a member of this church, I'm going to be a good citizen and I'm going to inherit eternal life. And it totally abandons the need for Jesus to die on a cross. And so evangelicalism, it keeps the cross as a center point of what actually qualifies us to, to be right with God. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. I mean, I think, uh, that this is the message of Christianity, that God loved the world so much that he sent his son to die for us. And he didn't send his son to die for us because uh, he want, he just felt like it, but that we actually needed redemption. And uh, yeah, you hear, you if you're listening, you may have heard the term social gospel before. And I think that we can contrast the Christ-centered gospel with the social gospel of, hey, you know, just more so um, if you look at the two commandments that Jesus gave, which is love God and love your neighbor. The social gospel is more focused on love your neighbor. And, you know, we're really uh, thankful for that message of, hey, love your neighbor, do good in your community, get out there and um, serve the poor do those kind of things. But evangelicals believe that primarily and firstly, we have an issue of the heart. It's the start with you. You need to repent. And every individual, and this will lead us into our third point, but every individual needs to come to the cross of Christ, bow down, confess him as Lord, and repent because the problem starts there. And after that, God brings transformation in our heart, in our life, so that we can go and do good works. In Ephesians 2, verses 8, 9, and 10, it says that we are saved by grace through faith. And this is not of ourself, but it is, it is the gift of God. And later it says that we, uh, 
did not earn the salvation, but after God gave us the salvation as a gift through Christ, he prepares good works for us to do. And so we believe that the good works really only have value in the context of uh, post-conversion because we're doing the good works now from the heart of repentance and the good works don't cause us to be prideful because if you do the good works and you think that you're collecting points for yourself uh, of you know good marks, then this can cause you to be prideful. And it's what uh, many theologians in the past have dubbed damnable good works. And, uh, you know, all of our, I think Charles Spurgeon said, all of our good works are like rags before God. And so God doesn't need our good works, but he wants us to do good works after we deal, uh, after he deals with our uh, sinful lives and redeems us now we can be vessels of change and of uh societal or cultural transformation but if we don't deal with our own personal issues before we go and try to change the world then we have we have a huge problem and i think uh jordan peterson embodies this message when he says hey first thing you want to do if you want to change the world is clean your room and i think like that is uh kind of what this principle is saying too is god is saying first get your own life in order repent and then if you want to go change the world that's great but you need to do it in a way you need to do things in the right order and so that's what the evangelical says the evangelical says the cross is first the cross is most important and after you allow jesus to change you through the cross then the holy spirit can fill you to go and do good works and so, yeah, I think that a lot of the social justice movement today is just backwards. It's people see, you know, a problem, they want to go change it. But actually, God wants to deal with the problem in our own heart first, and he wants to deal with it in the cross. That was all great, but I think it's hilarious that you attributed Charles Spurgeon to a Bible verse <laughs> where he said all like all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. That's Isaiah 64. Oh, really? Is that a Bible verse? Yeah, <laughs> that's all right. I'll give oh, you okay. a minus for that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So we want to move on to the conversionism. The belief yeah, that human beings. Need. Yeah, so that that'll lead us into uh, the third point of uh, Bevington's quadrilateral, which is evangelicals are very concerned about conversion, conversion centric. So why don't you break this one down for us, G? Yeah, so I mean this this very much ties in um, to crucicentricism. Is it like if the problems in our heart, then when we're attempting to do good to others and love people the primary thing that we desire for them is that they have hearts that are converted towards god before anything else human beings need to be reconciled back to god and when that happens and people are restored in relationship with god every every other thing flows out of that um and so it's it's a big it's been a big motivation in um, church history. I, I would say this is true of Catholicism as well, but also evangelical Protestantism. 
like one of the biggest differences you'll see between an evangelical Protestant and a non-evangelical Protestant is their view towards foreign missions. You know, when you look at the history of Protestantism, anytime that there was like an evangelical um, emphasis and belief system, they sent foreign missionaries to go. And the, the, the main desire was to see people converted to Christ. But even in the midst of that, you know, I look at, um, you know, you look at Africa where there's all these schools that started, there's all these hospitals. They, you know, there, so there was practical needs that were met, but the motivation was primarily um, people's like conversion. And anytime you can, like one of the biggest ways you can see where there's a deviation from that evangelical perspective is that people stop seeing the need for missions. You know, you see that in a lot of main mainline denominations that were historically Protestant or were historically evangelical and like late 1800s, early 1900s, a lot of them started to change in their convictions. And one of the things that started happening is that they stopped seeing the need to send missionaries to foreign places. Like at first it was like, okay, let's just go to, you know, dig wells and help build houses. But eventually it was, well, why do we think that we have anything that these other people need? Let's not go. But if you believe that every human being needs to be converted to Christ, there's always going to be that motivation for, for foreign missions, you know, where there are people who don't know Christ because um, you see that you'd see this as the greatest way in which you can love another person. Yeah, exactly. All of the, all of this really just comes down to, uh, are we listening to the command of Jesus, which is to go and to make disciples uh, in all nations? And, um, you know, it kind of ties back into the first one of Bible-centric, which I think that probably if we rank these, the focus on the Bible is the most essential because the Bible explains uh, these uh, subsequent three realities. Right. And, you know, the Bible says we need to go and make disciples, preach the gospel to all nations and to, you know, carry out this command that Christ has given us. And to not do that is to say, Hey Lord, we know better than you. And, uh, yeah. So yeah, I agree. We do go out in the world as, uh, missionaries and as church leaders and we share uh, the gospel but we also do good and i mean if you take a look at the best schools in india pakistan for instance uh nigeria. even the muslims nigeria as yeah. well, sure but even non-christian people send their kids to the christian schools because they're the some of the best schools that you can have and so Anyway, even in Turkey, Roberts College was founded by missionaries. It's one of the best private universities or private high schools here. Yeah, even historically, when you look at the U.S. and you look at the foundation of the university system, there's, there's this really good book on it called The Soul of the American University by George Marsden. But most of our foundations or even the university system was from evangelical Protestantism. When you look pre-1900s, that was the foundation that most of the universities were started. And so I, I guess that actually leads us to our next point of activism 
like the gospel should be expressed through effort. I think one of the criticisms that evangelicals sometimes gets is that it just kind of focuses on the people's like eternal life and focuses on practical needs. But historically, that's not really what plays out. I'm, I know that there's, you know, especially I think the last few decades, that's the perception people have of evangelicalism, but it doesn't really play out when you look at um, history of like, you know, like we talked about the university system, the hospitals, you know, that are built around the world. When you look at the abolition of slavery, you know, as as much as um, we look at the, uh, the uh, I don't know, the deception that came from a lot of Christians adopting slavery as something that was morally acceptable, the Second Great Awakening, a large evangelical movement, was a huge part of what developed um, just kind of an aversion towards slavery that ended up leading to his abolition. One of the greatest leaders that inspired a lot of other abolitionists was Charles Finney, like the the main evangelical preacher of his era. And many of, you know, a few of the people that he disciples, including this guy named Theodore Dwight Weld, you know, he ended up leaving, becoming an evangelical preacher to just focus on, um, you know, promoting abolition. And so, so like we believe that the gospel is expressed through efforts. It's expressed through good deeds that help um, our fellow men, you know, live, live better lives. Yeah, exactly. And this is where a lot of people get annoyed at evangelicals too, because uh, we're passionate about the issues that concern us and we're passionate about evangelism we're passionate about doing uh, good works and these kind of things and i think that one thing that really can rub people the wrong way about evangelicals in general is just that we are very unashamed that there is one way to god and whereas like other people maybe downplay this in other branches of christianity uh, the evangelical says, no, you need to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved in for eternity. And if not, there will be consequences. And I think this just rubs people the wrong way, which is natural because Jesus rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. And in our previous episode, we talked about uh, some of the hypocrisy within evangelicalism with leaders falling and stuff and i think this is why the the culture just loves it when an evangelical leader falls because a lot of people see evangelicals as moralistic as sexually uh, restrictive and they're a threat to certain you know uh things such as the LGBT movement, women's rights, and feminine, you know, radical feminism, and these kind of things. But really, people, when an evangelical leader falls, people love to say, hey, the moralism that you are purporting, you can't even stick to it. And yeah, I think that, you know, that's just one way in which uh, people get kind of annoyed is because we as evangelicals are very active and we always punch a little bit above our weight when it comes to politics and social issues. And yeah, 
Cool. Any other thoughts on that, Shaib? Yeah, I, I was just looking up statistics on other aspects where you see, like, the actions of evangelicals um, just showing the the commitment to, you know, what we call activism, so acting out your faith. And so um, I saw one statistic from Barna Research Group that says evangelicals are twice as likely to adopt a child than any other Americans. You know, if you've spent time in any kind of evangelical church, you would, you know, you'll see like a higher proportion compared to other places that you go of kids that are adopted by families. Um, and then I I was looking up some things on giving to charity. I don't know if you know any statistics off the top of your head, but I do know that, um, you know, evangelicals, I, I, I have to look it up, but are much more likely to give their finances. And I believe that even when you take out tithing and giving specifically to your church, they're more likely to give towards charity. You look at the number of organizations, evangelical organizations that um, do like uh, humanitarian aid. So you look at World Vision, Samaritan's Purse, Mercy Ships, Prison Fellowship International, International Justice Mission. You know, anytime there's like a some kind of disaster or there's a natural disaster or, um, you know, some type of war that displaces a lot of people, evangelical nonprofits are oftentimes at the front lines of it. And, you know, different governments will look to them to help, you know, um, with aid towards those people. So um, we can, I mean, I, I think the reason we're bringing some of this stuff up is that it's it's very easy to know the narrative of the things that seem to be negative and like, you know, hypocrisy and like moral failures. But a lot of people don't know the statistics of some of some of these areas where you see that people who are identifying with these four four aspects of the quadrilateral, biblicism, crucicentrism, conversionism and activism, it actually leads them to live lives that are from a sociological aspect, statistically different than the other people. Um, and I think that's significant to, to note um, how that actually impacts people um, in different parts of the world. Yeah, that's a really good point because a lot of times what we see in the news is just highlighting the bad stuff. Right. And we really lose sight of how many kids are being cared for because of donations from the evangelical West and with organizations like world vision who support children who don't have enough money to eat and go to school. And, you know, you can support a child for 30 bucks a day. And I know many people in our communities in America who are supporting four or five children. And uh, yeah, so just a couple examples like that. I think that there are a lot of, uh, criticisms but it's good to highlight a lot of the strengths too that bring net positives to the world in terms of uh, justice and social change yeah absolutely yeah so those were the those are the four um, points that we hit um, last time we thought we'd break down a little more defining the core beliefs of evangelicalism and on the next nice. episode um, what we're going to talk about is specifically we're talking about progressive Christianity and talk about how on each of these four core tenets, um, you know, how it kind of calls 
you know, Christians to compromise on some of these beliefs. And we're going to try to give it a fair evaluation of where there's seems to be legitimate criticism of evangelicalism, but also where we feel like it can be dangerous and leading people down the wrong path. So hopefully you tune into that episode and thanks for joining us this time. All right. Take care, guys.